0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch.
1: Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Kara, acne can be
0: tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help.
2: Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages.
0: Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%.
2: Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see, it stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day.
0: As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive
2: into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining
0: reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. We are so excited to share today's episode with you all, with Donna Jackson Nakazawa, She is an award winning science journalist, author of seven books, and an internationally recognized speaker whose work explores fascinatingly the intersection of neurobiology and human emotion. Our conversation with Donna looks specifically at what she covers in her latest book, Girls on the Brink Helping Our Daughters Thrive in an Era of Increased Anxiety, Depression, and Social Media. We recorded this episode a week before the Youth Risk Behavior Survey came out reporting on incredibly alarming rates of mental health challenges for adolescent girls. And we're so grateful we did because Donna's work really helps us understand why teen girls are at greater risk as we explore the impact of estrogen on brain development and how toxic stress can play a role in that. It's really fascinating. We hope you find it as illuminating as we did. And we're really honored to be able to share this interview with Donna today. Hi, Donna.
1: Hi, Cara. Hi,
2: Vanessa. So, so nice to have you here. I'm fangirling big time. You and right I... catch
1: back at you guys. <laughs> you
2: know, you and I met on the pages of your galley I was so lucky to be able to read your most recent book in advance. We might share an editor whom we both might love.
1: <laughs> and we adore. both love and adore in case she's listening. She's so wonderful. And I got
2: to take a sneak peek. And I will tell you, as a writer, you know this. There's this incredible thing that happens when you're asked to read a book in advance. The thing is, you're really flattered, but you're also—it's one more thing to do, and you're so busy. You're so—oh my gosh! Right, and it is—it is is just—it's a a bit of a burden. I'm not gonna Mm lie;
1: it's an ask, and a whole line of asks. It is—it's a heavy ask, getting asked. Yeah, and
2: this galley comes for girls on the brink, and my first reaction, I was like, "Work, work," and then I opened it. And all I can say is, this was the lightest lift anyone has ever asked me to do in blurbing a book. This is a fabulous book. Oh, Cara,
1: thank you so much. And coming from you, uh, both of you, with your intersection in the girl world in this very deep way, you know, you guys, it's what you live, it's what you've done, it's what you do in addition to being writers. And so coming from you, just thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we want, right? We want to be behind the scenes, putting in the hard work, you know, digging in, being that fly on a wall, you know, for me and it's scientists labs or, you know, doing that really heavy, heavy lift so that when somebody picks it up and hopefully for us, right, it's parents, educators, and practitioners, it's a light lift. So I love your description. I love that. Thank you. Well, you are welcome and
2: thank you.
1: And it's a light lift on a heavy
0: topic. Heavy. For which you provide some helpful and positive and optimistic ways forward. But let's start with the premise of the book and the science, because the science is fascinating and we know how much our listeners love understanding science that they are really unfamiliar with. Here's what everyone's familiar with. The mental health of adolescent girls in this country, even before the pandemic was in dire straits, an epidemic of anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders, right? The list goes on and on and it's really frightening. And grim. And you do a really helpful job of helping us parse what's driving the decline in mental health. You make it really clear that it's not just that girls are better expressing their feelings than boys are. And so the numbers are higher because they're able to articulate their emotions. So let's start there. What is driving this decline? You talk about it both from a scientific perspective and also from a societal perspective around gender. So start wherever you want to start, but let's give people the 30,000 foot view.
1: Right. So, as you said, Vanessa, the decline in girls' mental health. I mean, we have it epidemiologically, but we also have it in more real terms, like researchers, public health researchers actually looking at girls' lived experience and how it differs today from 10 or 20 years ago, where girls are having periods of months marked by hopelessness, fatigue, loss of interest in their activities. One in three girls report a serious period of depression by age 17, and that's based on how their day-to-day life is going and marked by guilt. And, you know, what is that? That is not the world that we three grew up in. So, of course, you know, as a science journalist, I wanted to dig in and figure out what's driving this trend if we know that it isn't just greater diagnosis. And that led me, lucky me, to meet and work with four of the leading female neurobiologists really on the planet who happen to be in the United States and sit with them and dig into this question. And here are some of the things that I found. Number one, (laughs) Girls are coming of age in a time where we've really lost what I call those in-between years, right, between 7 and 13, where girls needed a period of time that they could just learn how to be friends and what interested them and lie on the grass and scratch the back of their heads and look at the clouds. That period has been replaced with this fast, hard, incoming, external judgment and evaluation from. So many sources, so let's list a few. Academically, the benchmarks are faster, sooner, and higher. In extracurriculars, you know, Vanessa, your work with girls in sports. You're seven, and you're on club teams and driving four states away on the weekends to compete. And of course, social media has completely changed that landscape of evaluation for girls, Platforms say, oh, you have to be 13 to sign up, but even their internal studies show most girls are on by seven, eight, or nine. And we know that girls more than boys meet external evaluation on social media, more critiques. They are more likely to meet with sexualization, which is being seen as a sexual object. And the girls that I spent time with and followed for two years told me, hey, if you want to be popular today, it's not about the cafeteria. It's about who you are on Snapchat, Insta, and TikTok. And to be popular in real life, as they put it, IRL, you've got to be popular on social media, which means being hot by the time you're 10 or Mm. 11 or 12. And that means being sexualized. And what is that? Come back to this one thing that I learned. It means that as you should be in those years figuring out who you are, what you love, and who you want to be, instead, your sense of identity and self-worth are developing in the marketplace, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where there is a constant critical judging eye on whether you meet up. With this sexualized view of girlhood by an impossible female standard. And that is the coming of age landscape. And we can talk in a minute about why that's so damaging to the female developing brain in particular, and what social safety has to do with it, and what puberty coming in earlier has to do with it as well. But I think that's a big chunk right there. So I'll pause.
2: And it strikes me that where you use the word popular, maybe a broader application, something you talk about in your book a lot is also just this concept of being seen in general, right? So it's for those who want to be popular, yes, all those keys exist. And for those who want to be seen, really the steps to get there in the world today are exactly as you've just laid them out as well, which is just brutal.
1: It's brutal. And we know that in fact, there is a disconnection that kids find online, it's kind of like back in the day, I really age myself saying this, but like, you know, Twinkies, you know, you'd think as a kid, like after school, ah, I don't know, Twinkie, fill me up, whatever, nice little snack, but it's empty calories, right? And it's never going to fill you in the same way that this connection and approval that social media platforms have literally created their algorithms around. I mean, the algorithm mm-hmm. is, to try to get you to return, to get that sense that you belong, that as you said, Cara, you're seen, that you matter, that you belong, even while ginning up the hardest, most negative emotions, anger, despair, lack of belonging, because that hooks your brain to keep coming back. So you are never going to find it there And the only antidote we have is to build up that connection in real life so that it's greater than what girls feel like they're going to find online. I want to
0: talk for a second, Donna, because you explain it so helpfully, right? So many adults have the instinct that what's going on for their kids online or in social media or in kind of modern day life is concerning. But we don't necessarily understand the science, the brain science behind what's actually making it emotionally dangerous for kids. Can you talk about, you frame the sense of safety, right? How stress and how these experiences on social media and contemporary society are threatening girls' safety and what that does to brain development. Can you walk us through it? Because
1: it's really helpful. So I'm going to have to break that into two parts, just frame it for you guys. So first let's talk about how puberty for girls is a little bit different than for boys. So let me do that. And then I'm going to pivot and I'm going to talk to, although I don't like to use the word pivot anymore because it's overused. So overused. So overused. You're going to pirouette. Let me, pirouette. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to steal that. and a pirouette, although I'm very much not that handy on my feet, <laughs> toward the topic of social safety and why that matters so much for adolescent development. So let's go to how is this period of puberty a little bit different for girls than it is for boys? Well, to understand that, we have to understand first that nobody asked this question until 2016. So imagine my surprise as a science journalist having written a few books to find that a lot of the reporting that I had done on mental health across development and safety and adversity. So, the intersection of adversity on mental health across development had all been done on a male brain model. Okay. Now, I'm someone who also has suffered with a bunch of heart issues. And it's kind of like not so long ago when we found out everything we knew about my heart was based on a male heart, and it just didn't turn out to be the case. This is very much the same thing with what we thought we knew about the female developing brain. And in 2016, the NIH just asked, requested, this is still not required just by the by, that neuroscientists and immunologists study the female brain when they look at how external stressors or what scientists call external hits affect the brain across health and development. And can you just explain
0: why they chose to look at male brains and not female brains in the first place? Because it brings all of your stuff together.
1: They wanted to keep those pesky hormones out of it. It was going to mess up their experiments. So enter a group of female neurobiologists who, as is so often the case, I find in my reporting are willing to kick over everything in order to get it done and get it done really well. And they began looking at these questions and it turns out that there are really, really big differences in how unrelenting stress affects the developing female brain at puberty during the influx of estrogen. So this is gonna take me a minute. Everybody take a sip of water. It's worth it. We promise it's worth, worth it. it. I it's fascinating. Promise, stay with me. So estrogen is this superpower groovy hormone. And in the absence of toxic, unrelenting stress, the female adolescent brain is a true superpower. It's got this very cool spidey sense, the corpus callosum. That's this thing that connects the left and right hemispheres. It's like extra thick and juicy. The female adolescent brain is just so full of promise, thought, possibility. And part of the reason it has this superpower potential is because estrogen is a super groovy hormone. It is a master regulating hormone we think of it as this hormone that comes in and is responsible for mood shifts. And like so many things in female anatomy, the minute that we say something is different about the way that the female brain or body works, we ascribe it with all these horrible attributions Not so far from back when they thought the uterus wandered through the body and it wandered in the wrong places. And that was why a woman would have melancholy or depression, or by the way, not want to sleep with her husband. Okay. So we've taken female differences and put them under this very humiliating light for women for so long. So let's not do that. And let me be clear, I am not doing that the differences that we see when estrogen comes in only exist when the environment is toxically stressful. Estrogen is the reason why if you are sitting here listening and you are female, that you as a woman can do everything that a guy can do 16 hours a day, And do it just as well, if not better, while also doing it on smaller organs in probably a smaller body, maybe not, but usually, and also make room for a uterus and carry another life. Estrogen is your boost, it's that immune boost, and it comes in during puberty. It re regulates the brain, it helps the brain to remodel based on how safe the brain is or isn't. And that's going to be part two of my answer. But it can flip from this evolutionary advantage to an evolutionary disadvantage when the environment is coming in really hot, fast, and with major stressors that make one feel that they are not going to be safe as they grow up and go into this world. And then we begin to see estrogen exacerbate what I call, in simplest terms, although honestly, could take up three chalkboards, as Cara, you know all too well. It exacerbates this damage cascade of inflammatory hormones and chemicals that over time can do all kinds of terrible things, exacerbating physical disease in the body, but also shifting. The chemistry of the brain in ways that, again, three chalkboards later can flip on the genes for depression and anxiety and pruning the brain in ways that can lead to mental health concerns.
2: And I want to take a pause for yes. a second and tie up one loose end because I know you're going here next when you're going to talk about chronic stress. I just want to put a finer point on the piece about inflammation. Yes. Because What we all know, um, all of us sitting behind microphones today, and frankly, most of the listeners as well, because you are a well-read and really hungry for good knowledge audience, we all know that the lowest common denominator of so much disease is Mm -hmm. inflammation. And inflammation and chronic stress are intimately connected. Yes. And so can we go there for a minute? because. Estrogen exacerbates the issues that are caused by inflammation and inflammation is caused by a number of different hits, if you will. They can be environmental, they can be nutritional, they can be physical. Let's
1: go there with chronic stress. Let's do it. So here's the thing. And those of you who know my work know I wrote a whole book about neuroinflammation called The Angel and the Assassin. And the reason I did that is because really for 300 years, there was this idea in science that the immune system and the brain didn't really talk to each other. In fact, for the nerds in the room, the brain was actually considered to be the only organ that was immune privileged, right? Meaning the immune system did not rule it. But again, thanks to a group of female neurobiologists at Harvard, they went in and took a closer look at how it is that there are these changes in the brain that we see in depression and anxiety and other neuropsychiatric disorders in which we see pruning show up that later manifests as mental health Mm. symptoms. So what was causing some of those necessary and needed neural synapses to go down when they shouldn't be, including in development, right? And it turned out that the answer to this was that there are these little immune cells in the brain called microglia that have been completely misunderstood by scientists. They thought that they were just these little helper cells that cleaned out trash in the brain. But it turns out that- Literally, the- that's
2: what we were taught in medical school. They that's were like the we're ta- local vacuum cleaners. Yeah, They were the
1: local vacuum cleaners. But guess what, folks? On the seventh day of gestation, these little cells break off from your immune cells during development, your white blood cells, and they rise to the brain where they rule brain health from cradle to grave. And what that means is that the same stressors and environmental hits, we've used that term a couple of times, that are coming from the outside world, the stressors that we're talking about from the world online to living in an era of school shootings and climate change and all of the different faster benchmarks for external evaluation and am I good enough and am I seen and do I matter? All of these social emotional hits, which we're going to break down in a second, why those are crucial. They are clocked by the brain as an external stressor that revs up the brain's immune system or what we call neuroinflammation and these little microglial cells running around like Pac-Man overpruning neural synapses and spitting out neural inflammatory toxins that shift the brain's health. So we know that this is a good 10 years now. It still isn't quite trickling into the population as a way of understanding brain health. I think we've made progress on that, but you do want to know that piece of it to really bring this science home. If you listen to enough
0: of our episodes, you'll hear us preach the importance of air, particularly down there. Airing out body parts reduces sweatiness, stinkiness, and skin irritation. And it feels amazing to air it all out after a long day in tight, sweaty clothes.
2: Which is why we created the Oom Short. Super soft, lightweight, with wide legs and a low crotch. All help air flow. Designed for all genders, in all sizes, literally down to kids extra small and up to men's extra large. Everyone who wears them tells us they've never been so comfy. Get your shorts at myumla.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need,
0: and you can press, pause, or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order... Go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator.
2: It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause.
0: We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to com slash puberty, dot com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at bioptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them.
2: Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com
0: puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. So that's a lot of information, but it's really important because Cara and I spent a lot of time talking about how puberty and adolescence is not just a below the neck phenomenon. It is just as much. And you might even argue even more an above the neck phenomenon. And that the shorthand that we use, the stereotyping that we use, the gendered assumptions that we use about kids does them a disservice because of the really fascinating and complex stuff that's happening in their brains, which, as we often say, they cannot help, right? There's a lot that is out of their control. And when we think about the environmental factors, and by environmental, I mean, I don't just mean, you know, green earth, but I mean, social media, stress, academic stress, achievement, you know, all of those things, climate change, school shootings, those are things that are out of their control, That's right. right? And that is affecting their development, their brain, and their sense of safety. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Well, and you know what else is out of their control? And I suspect this is where you're going next is when they head into puberty is out of their control. Yes. And we know, of course, because this is the puberty podcast.
1: <laughs> you hear this on
2: every episode that you know the average age for girls to head into puberty, which means their estrogen is beginning to surge, is between eight and nine in this country. For boys, it is between nine and 10. Boys have estrogen too, by the way, and we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But this is really important to understand because all of the environmental factors that we've discussed, right, they don't have an age gate. So these things are hitting kids younger and younger and younger. And so too, is estrogen in the brain. And so can we look at that specific piece yes. of it and what earlier puberty means to a brain that already has all this inflammation?
1: Yes. So because puberty is happening earlier, this radical shift has occurred in which adolescents used to be intended to come before puberty. You got, so in 1900, I think puberty onset in girls was 15, right? So this is just like a huge shift.
2: Although I do want to jump in and say some of that was problematic in and of itself because it reflected poor nutritional circumstances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think probably we should say using like between 11 and 12 as the average age based on the Tanner studies is probably a good toe into healthy
1: environment, blah, 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 okay. Blah, 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 blah. So as puberty has come in earlier, which as Vanessa said, so much is now out of kids' control. They're not in control of even that, right? Of course, there's no, those biological breaks in the brain, which say puberty, come on, let's do this. Let's grow up real hard and fast. Some of which we know may be tied to the onset of so many stressors in the environment, Mm -hmm. sending the message, you better grow up faster because it's pretty rough out there. So grow, grow, grow. So with puberty happening faster, what that means is that the developing brain hasn't had that period that we talked about, those in-between years, to really figure out, okay, answers to questions like, how serious is this if my friend says they hate me? Or how terrible a thing is this if I fail to test? Or how do I even verbalize what I'm feeling right now in this feeling of self overwhelm and maybe self-flagellation. And guess what? How do I ask for help? These crucial areas of the brain, not just in those areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, but between those key areas, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, the connectome of the brain hasn't wired and fired up yet. In order to handle this level, this adult level of incoming stressors or distress. And that's really problematic because now we see, okay, more stressors coming in, more neuroinflammation, which we talked about, less sense of safety, which I'm going to get to in a sec. I keep saying that. Um, (laughs) And puberty coming in earlier, estrogen comes in to remodel the brain. And what we're seeing is a brain that looks different. Mm. It's not a brain that has the scaffolding for resilience in the face of the many, many stressors that are coming in earlier during the most vulnerable time in female brain development as estrogen surges.
0: Which is why when we say to folks, please don't tell your daughter it's not a big deal. Please don't say to her, cut the drama, because. Their brains are overwhelmed. It does feel like a big deal to them. And as we think about safety, you know, that's just like a tiny cue about where Donna's going to go about creating connection and creating safety for these kids with these developing brains. So, Donna, do you want to take us to the promised land of?
1: Yes, yes. But first, <laughs> I've got to keep my promise of talking about social safety. And then we can talk about how connection is really the antidote. So really, the opposite of all this stress is connection. And to put a really fine point on that, to really understand why we have to go way, way back in time. I mean, really way back to a time when we were, you know, early hunter-gatherers and cooperation really mattered more than anything among the tribe. If you were socially dissed or dismissed or somebody just rolled their eyes at you over the communal fire, that was clocked by the brain as the first sign that you might be slowly ostracized. Why did that matter? Because if you were pushed, you and your offspring, by the way, were pushed further to the outskirts of the tribe. That meant you were not going to be the person to get the good meat on the fire, to go out and get the tubers and the fruits and harvest it. You and your offspring and, you know, across evolutionary time, we care a lot about our personal gene pool. People think we care about the human gene pool, but it turns out as humans, we care about our gene pool. And so the first sign of social unsafety being dissed, dismissed, laughed at, made fun of over thousands and thousands of years, obviously, our immune systems are really wicked smart. They evolved They evolved with our ability to suss out if we were socially unsafe, so that at the very first sign of social unsafety or not belonging or not being seen or not mattering or feeling dissed or dismissed or left out or humiliated, our immune system, which we just talked about, revs up. Amazing. It revs up. It says, okay, if I'm not going to belong, then sooner or later, I'm going to be at the edge of the tribe or I'm going to be outside of it altogether. And that's going to lead to physical danger from the elements, predators, warring tribes. All of this has to be credited to George Slavich at UCLA with, with his colleagues. It's the scientific father of social safety theory. And it's really... Changing the way that we understand the importance of safety and safe social connection and mattering for the developing brain. Because let's go back to what we talked about girls on social media. Sure, you know, you and I know that if 20 people gang up on you and say your dress looks like crap and you're whatever, you know, you're ugly on social media, it's not going to kill you. But to the brain over millennia, it says that it will. And now put that together with the fact that girls' brains are going through puberty earlier, estrogen is rushing in, and they don't have the skills of scaffolding to handle that feeling at 2 a.m. when their phone is dinging. They don't even know how to get out of bed and go ask an adult, how do I process this?
2: I have to say that your explanation the way my brain is interpreting it right now, it's making clear for me something that happens in my house often that I've never really understood. So something will go on for my kids socially and I will have a feeling. The word might be empathy, but that's not the feeling. The feeling is like a flood of physical memory. Yes. And it feels like when I was a tween or a teen, when I was a tween, it wasn't even called a tween, but it feels like that feeling that you are describing now. Yes. Because there is this visceral memory of what that social attack felt like. And my husband, who is a very emotionally in touch guy, yeah, doesn't understand it. He actually... We talk about it a lot. He does not understand why I go there in such a visceral way. And I have to keep it in check. I cannot even tell my kids I feel this way much of the time because it's so powerful to me. And it's like such a right. And I feel like what you are describing that happens in the brain of kids who are between call it seven and 18, 19, 20. I mean, we could talk about what the upper limit is, but. We know that trauma sears a memory. And I think that micro trauma is so deeply ingrained
0: for me that I am actually reliving it with my kids. Donna, we know that that initial elevated reaction, it's not good for you. And that's actually not the energy you want to bring to your interaction with your kid, regardless of their gender. They need us to... We talk about leaving your baggage at the door, right? And sort of putting to the side those visceral, intense, sometimes traumatic memories, right? But it's really hard and we feel it so deeply and we need to be there for our kids. We can't bring that into the conversation, into the connection with our kids because they don't need our shit on top of their shit, right? So we have a kid of any gender and their brains are firing and their bodies are changing and they're pruning and they're, it's all going on. And the thing that keeps them safest is what?
1: Our regulation. They regulate off of our state of regulation. The calmer that we can get in every cell of us, the calmer and safer they will feel in every cell of them. And I hate to tell you, The work starts with you. That's just where it begins. That's how it is. There's no getting around it. You know, people may know my work in the book, Childhood Disrupted, really writing about the gravity of early adverse childhood experiences. And the antidote to that is connection with one safe, supportive, loving, caregiving adult who is self-regulated, who has been able to do that work. So that when Kara or I are like flying <laughs> in our heads,
0: because Vanessa never does that.
1: Oh no, I'm so
0: <laughs> calm, cool, and collected. I just always. had that feeling about. Oh like, yes, oh yeah. yes. My kids would completely agree with that.
1: <laughs> Not I at all. That you are able to recognize and connect the dots way beyond our biology. Put our biology aside. Whoever you are, mother, father, grandparent. To be able to connect the dots to your own story, figure out what is causing this hyperventilation for you, know the pieces. I don't know if you guys know at universities, I teach narrative writing. So I teach a narrative writing program to physicians, to therapists, because putting that story together in a narrative way with depth and clarity can change our lives in those moments so that we can go okay, this is A condition, B condition and C condition are being met. This is throwing me into a state of dysregulation or or our personal vortex. I have these skills to come out of it. And I talk a lot about that in the book, obviously. And now I'm going to go do that work right this second and keep doing that work so that I can return to this moment. I can step out bring myself down. And it's hard work. I am not lying. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that this is easy or this is like a, you know, one sentence self-help work. It's not that. It's a journey that you're on. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to mess it up. But you, the more that we learn that there is a neuroprotective art and a science to connection, even in very difficult moments, even in moments that are very difficult for us in our own heads, And the more that you practice that art and that science, the faster you get to be that parent that you want to be in those moments so that you can look back at more of those conversations and go, okay, I wasn't perfect. I'm a human, but it wasn't so bad. That's a win. So can you, and I'm
2: going to ask this in a slightly different way only because I think there are listeners who really want to understand, can we land in a place that looks at if estrogen plus inflammation is a tough combo, can you talk just for a minute about testosterone plus inflammation? Because that was our baseline, right? That's what was in all the studies. And then maybe even look forward to some of the data that might hopefully is being collected about populations that are using hormones to transition gender and what that combination is looking like in the
1: brain. Well, I can only answer what we know. So for instance, we know that in terms of immune regulation, that testosterone doesn't really jack up this stress immune response in the same way. So it does other things. I could get super deep in the weeds into the work of Delisa Fairweather at Mayo Clinic about how there is a certain way in which testosterone helps to regulate inflammation, inflammation. That we don't see in the female body. And it has to do with stress hormones called GCs or glucocorticoids. So, the good news for the developing male brain is that testosterone is more of a regulatory hormone for the immune system, but it's not all good news, right? We see when boys developing cisgender boys, um, and then we'll get to the gender fluidity, are developing that testosterone and we don't have all this worked out yet, that we begin to see the effects of chronic stress show up in different areas of the brain that have more to do with attention and have more to do with behavior. So one way of looking at this is through the amygdala and researchers have looked at how chronic stress perfuses and activates the amygdala in girls facing chronic stress and boys. It's really interesting because... The left amygdala, which is associated with rumination, which in turn is associated with depression, gets really perfused and active in girls in the face of ongoing chronic stress, but it doesn't in boys. And what does that mean? Like we can't know everything from brain scans, but it hints, it hints that girls in the face of ongoing stress become very ruminative. It turns inward, that external judgment. Those environmental hits, they turn inward on themselves with self judgment and self loathing. But that area of the amygdala is associated with non action when it gets perfused. And the fact that boys, it doesn't light up as much, is associated with the idea that boys are more likely to take that stress out. Mm -hmm. externally into actions and behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really important to know because even though the suicide rate among girls in these ages we're talking about has been skyrocketing, it was 51% Mm -hmm. in 2021 compared to 4% in boys, facts are more boys actually take action and end their lives. So those are some of the things that we know about testosterone versus estrogen, we don't have it all tied down yet. And that takes me to non-cisgender studies. We don't have them. We just started looking at the female brain a minute ago. And I, as I write in the book, I so sincerely hope that we widen this scope to bring in every single possible child wherever they are on the gender identity spectrum. And none of this research should be used to make it sound as if myself or any researcher, any of us on this podcast, are saying that gender fluidity isn't real and that it doesn't matter. This is just about a minute ago that scientists even looked at the fact that, as Mary Insini at Pitt, who's a genius, discovered that ongoing toxic stressors on the female developing brain create global changes on 3,000 sites epigenetically in a way that doesn't happen on the developing male brain. So we've got to look at all this. It's the beginning of discovery. Yeah. We're going to wrap. I mean, Donna, we could
0: talk to you for days. Literally. 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 (laughs) I want to end in a place of constructive, optimistic positivity because a lot of the book is actually what caregivers can do to support and love and connect to the kids in their lives. Can you head us out into the sunset with just one piece of, and maybe if it's even a a scenario, right, where you talk about connection and you talk about adults doing their own work before they can do effective work with the kids they love. When you have a child who is not in a good place, or when you have a child who comes home and you know that something is wrong... What does that look like? What does that sound like, right? You're sitting on the couch at the end of an evening, you're sitting at the dinner table and there's silence across from you. Ground us in that. what that connection looks and feels like in that moment.
1: Right. So we all want to live in a world where our kids or teenagers come in and they just tell us eloquently what they're feeling and what they need. But a lot of times what it looks like is a backpack slammed on the kitchen table and a watered glass spilling over maybe on your manuscript. Let's <laughs> just like, Let's
0: just say. it sounded like a very specific example. <laughs>
1: let's just say. And we want to be the detective. We want to be the fixer because early in child development, that really served us, right? Like your kid, like... Falls off the slide? Where does it hurt? You know, you're trying to assess like, what do we need to do next? Are we going to the ER or is this like a band aid and a kiss? But as kids get into these really roiling years, right, it's so important that we step back from being the detective or the fixer and we step out with that energy that we talked about that really fight flight energy. We regulate ourselves and we. Give them the space and the time and the moment as long as it takes to let them figure out how to express what they need to us. And there's some really powerful, you know, I'm more of a narrative writer, I'm not into scripts, but I am in this instance. I am into scripts because if you think about that state that Cara and I talked about where your brain is offline. You are in some like weird evolutionary biological flip out mode. You're not going to say and do the right thing. You're not going to grasp those things that need to be said or done, or simply emulated by your calm. So having scripts is really, really powerful. I mean, if your daughter comes in and just like, what I know you tell me I didn't get invited to so and so's party. You know, I hate her. You know, what do I do? I'm gonna. Gotta, what do you think I should do? Maybe she said, Hey, you know what? Right now, what you think is so much more important than what I think, let's start with what you're thinking and feeling, like always having it in the back of your mind that there are ways that you, even in your flipped out what's going on state, can come back to Mm -hmm. that central thesis of a calm, centered environment in which she feels safe and known. We don't have time to get into the 50 ways to do that. I think there's a song like that, right? But um, 50 ways to leave your lover. 50 50 ways ways to calm your teenager. 50 ways (laughs) to calm your kid's brain. But there are words and actions that can do it. And that is the promised land.
2: But that umbrella that you have just opened for everyone to use is the win. I mean, we've all been there where we shut up and we let them speak. best conversations we have with our kids where they sound like complete geniuses are the ones where they talk, right? I mean, isn't that just, and it's really hard because, I mean, sometimes they sound really dumb, don't get me wrong, but most of the time they, when we give them the space, they're able to show that they can see all sides, or they want to see all sides, or they want to come to consensus and solution. But it does take, as you have described, a number of steps in yeah. us like just taking the breath, calming ourselves down, being quiet, telling them what they say matters. And the hardest part is the moment when you, the parent, know the right answer. Right. <laughs> It's so obvious. And yet it just won't land if you say it and giving the time changes everything
0: to let and them And they that. don't build the skill of figuring no. it out for themselves, right? Because what you're doing, Donna, when you ask that question to them, what do you think is you're helping them build the muscle of self-reflection right. and planning and that's right. then maybe a moment to calm down as they think and wonder okay well what what am i going to do and by the way listeners sometimes the response to well what do you think is
2: i don't know what i think that's why i'm asking you
0: <laughs> right it's not always going to be this like profoundly brilliant response but it gets them in the habit of thinking what do i think how do i feel how that's am i great. responding to this and then the next time and the next time they are better equipped to handle it and to hopefully manage it, which is ultimately the goal.
1: And you are literally building up. You're firing and wiring really important structure in the brain that they will need one day when you're not in front of them to ask. And I'll kind of leave you with this. Researchers at Hopkins, Christina Bethel, who's head of the Data Resource Center for Mothers and Teens and Children, and a professor did this fascinating study that showed that the odds of a teenager of any gender flourishing across adolescence were get this 12 times higher, 12 times. We never see findings like that in research. For kids whose families could answer yes to one question, can this child come to you to talk about anything, no matter how difficult? And guess what it turns out? that in those moments, what you say is less important than whether you are listening.
0: Mm-hmm. So when we oh, say, I, I know when we say keep lines of communication open, no matter That's what what we mean, that is Donna, we're just going to press play every time we say that in the podcast and have your voice, but it is. It's not just hopeful, wishful thinking. It is scientifically proven that is a protective, the most protective measure that we can have and help establish with our kids. This is amazing. Thank you for joining us. We are so you grateful. for having me.
1: such a pleasure.
0: I mean, do you see everyone? Why I could just go girls <laughs> on, the brink.
1: Like <laughs> girls on <laughs> the brink. Girls on the brink.
2: <laughs> girls on the brink and the entire backlist. Please. Cara on the brink. <laughs> we will put we will put links in the show notes, and we didn't even get to all of the really actionable solutions.
1: Yeah, there are fifteen neuroperspective antidotes.
2: antidotes.
1: Antidotes, antidotes.
2: Best word. So you'll people have people just come have back. to buy the book. And you'll have to come back. Please, please, please. I will
1: definitely come back. And in case it's helpful, we I do teach a narrative writing three-hour workshop for parents who want oh, to amazing. do this work and just kind of figure it out. So anyway, such a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you so much from all of our different places in the United States. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Donna. Thank you pleasure. so much.
2: Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye.